Thank you, Rick. Look forward to more worship a little later on in the service. Thanksgiving can be kind of a, a relative term. If you have a lot, what does it take to make you truly grateful? If you have very little, what does it take to make you truly grateful? For example, let's say you just finished your favorite meal, including your favorite dessert. Apparently, for some of the worship team, turkey is a favorite meal, I understand, Judy. So um, let's say you just finished your favorite meal and your favorite dessert, and you just finished, and you're just sitting back, and all of a sudden, your favorite meal comes out again. And your favorite meal is followed by dessert again. Are you as grateful the second time as you were the first time? Let's say you just got flowers at noon on your birthday. I suspect you're probably grateful. But let's say you got flowers again at 1 o'clock on your birthday. And then you got flowers at 2 o'clock on your birthday. And then you got flowers at 3 o'clock on your birthday. Would you... Now, realizing that gratitude and surprise are kind of two different emotions... You know, would you still be as grateful by 5 o'clock when the sixth bouquet of roses comes to you? You know, there's an element of, of thanksgiving and gratitude that is, is somewhat relative. For another, say you're just given the keys to the car. And then you were given a $50 gas card. And when you brought the keys back, you were given the keys again, and you were given another 50 Well, I don't know if that was to go on that probably is proof that analogies all break down at some point and really don't help the cause, right? But an interesting you know, experience to think about, I think. We're going to take time after communion this morning for Thanksgiving and praise. And we usually do it at the beginning of the service, but we're in, it's Thanksgiving Sunday. We're celebrating communion. We're celebrating what we've been seeing about, about the wonderful cross. We're going to take some time. Uh, pass the mics around and just words of thanksgiving, words of praise to God, answers to prayer. We'll do that after communion this morning. But I also want us to realize that first century life, uh, the life that was in play for all the people that received the letters of Paul, first century life was very different from 21st century life. When the apostle writes to the churches about the blessings that come from their salvation, it's a very different setting. When the apostle Paul says to the churches, in everything give thanks, it's, it's very different from our life situations. And one of the first rules about Bible study is to understand what was going on in the first century, what was going on in the Old Testament, in the day and the era in which that prophet spoke or which that prophet was writing about. And so I think it's helpful for us to go back to the first century for a moment and put sort of thanksgiving, and especially the words of Paul to his readers in everything give thanks. What was life like in the first century? Well, first of all, in the first century, the worship of gods and goddesses prevailed in everything. 
multitudes of God and goddesses. The Romans had a habit of adopting the Greek gods and the gods of any, any people that they captured. And there was a, an abundance of, of gods that were worshipped. So if you were to go to, off to your trade in the morning at some time, as you were going down to your, to your shop, whatever your trade was, whatever artisanship you were involved in, the first thing that would happen would be there would be some kind of offering to the god of your trade. Or the god of your, if you were in agriculture, it would be the god of the fields. You would offer some sort of offering or a libation or a prayer to the god that was in charge of that era of life. And there was a, there was a god for everything in life. And so in the first century, when you started work, there was always some kind of worship to one of the gods in this abundance of gods that were out there. If you went to somebody's home, there was a house, there was a god for that house. And there was a little shrine in that house, and there was always some acknowledgement of the god who was over that household. I understand that they actually figured out that in the course of a year, there could be anywhere from 100 and 100 to 140 different parades to worship some god of that city. That's almost one every three days. There would be some parade celebrate. Work would stop. Everybody go out in the main street, and there'd be some parade to acknowledge the god or the goddess of that city. And recognize for a moment, as soon as we think in those terms, that everywhere you went, there was some god that was being worshipped. And for a follower of Jesus, who I think one of the songs said it pretty clearly, worships the one true god, if things go south, if things go bad in that trade, if there is a famine, if there is a drought, if somebody gets sick in that household, and you would come in that household and not worship that God, guess who's going to get blamed? Guess who's going to get blamed for the anger of that God that's shown on that crop, on that field, on that trade, or on that household? It's going to be the Christian. Okay, so life in the first century, and so we're talking about Ephesians, and so this thing about the principalities and powers, the authorities and the rulers in the heavenly places is pretty significant in the first century. We've sort of dumbed all that down, right? That, that's not reality in our 21st century, but in the first century, everything was under the control of the gods and the powers, the unseen forces at work. The cities were rather crowded. Let me just give you a perspective. In the city of Manhattan, the city of Manhattan averages about 110 people per acre. Okay, You know Manhattan with the high rise and all that? The average number of people per acre in Manhattan is 110 people. Now, I know there's a lot of mission work that goes on here. How many of you, any of you been to Mumbai, India? Any of you been to Mumbai? You know about Mumbai, India, right? I'm sure from the news or whatever. So the average Mumbai is 180 people per acre. The average city in the first century averaged about 150 people per acre. It was crowded. It was noisy. The streets were about 10 feet wide. And there was always something going on. And you always had to jostle your way around the livestock, not just on the streets, but in the places where you live. And speaking about the places where people live, Entire families were herded together in very tiny, tiny cramped cubicles with paper-thin walls. And if it wasn't for the drafty windows, they would have succumbed to the poison. They'd all died of carbon monoxide poisoning from the, the little coal fires that were burning to keep the place warm and to cook the meals. These little windows allowed minimal light, but at least they helped remove the stench of the chamber pot 
that was always in the room and then ready to be dumped on the street below. And I don't think they would say, look out below, before they dump the chamber pot. The good news about the drafts is that it kept people from dying from carbon monoxide poisoning and kept at least some kind of air moving through. The bad news was that that draft also caused the, the, the coals to flame up and to spark, and fires were notorious in those first century cities. The city of Antioch, the place that I'm sure many, many of you know was the place where the followers of Jesus were first called Christians, there were four devastating fires in the 600-year history of the city of Antioch. But there was also fires set by rebels and protesters and so on, and when things burned, they burned really quickly. Everyday housing in the first century was often cramped and dark and smoky and unsafe, always dirty and permeated with the smell of stench, of sweat, of waste and decay. And as the dust, dirt and rubbish accumulated, so did the bugs. And outside wasn't much better. Filled with refuse of every imaginable kind, the average street was about mud, open sewers, manure, human waste and even an occasional body shoved outdoors and abandoned all nicely baking in the hot Mediterranean sun. They say no wonder the rich people used a lot of incense. Cities for the vast majority of people were pest holes of disease marked by chronic health condition, swollen eyes and rashes. Lost and disfigured limbs and scars of various kinds were commonly listed as distinguishing marks in legal documents. That's life in the first century. That's the life to the people reading 1 Thessalonians. Paul says, in everything, give thanks. It certainly is a different picture than we would say when we hear the words of Paul, in everything, give thanks. Paul's letter to the Ephesians opens with an invitation to praise. If you have your Bibles, turn to Ephesians chapter 1. If you've got your uh, phone or your... Um, your media device, follow in there, Ephesians chapter 1. It's about thanksgiving. It's about praise. Ephesians chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And here the, the worship begins. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. This whole opening passage of Ephesians is, is kind of like a, a worship hymn. It's kind of like there, there's different aspects that, that Paul is going to highlight, but it, it's, it's about praise. It, it's a doxology. It's as if God, Paul is saying, praise God from whom all blessings flow. And then he, he goes and he, he outlines what are, what are those blessings. The first verse is, he has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Notice it's every spiritual blessing. Not every material blessing. Not every physical blessing. Not every relational blessing. It begins with an understanding that it's every spiritual blessing in Christ. And that goes back to the very beginning, when Paul says in verse 4, For he chose us 
in Christ before the foundation, before the creation of the world, to be holy and blameless in his sight. It all starts with God. He chose us, not that we chose him. Jesus said to his disciples in the Gospel of John, you did not choose me, I chose you. Well, that's, that's pretty cool. That's pretty amazing. Because the other thing we know from what the Bible says is that, that we have nothing in common with God. Outside of Jesus Christ, there is nothing that inclines us towards God. There is none righteous. None. No, not one. No matter how innocent, no matter how pure we may seem, there is no one who is righteous, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But God chose us. Wow. For God chose us in him, and it happened long before. It happened long before Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve sinned. God had this all planned out. It's not like he had to say, okay, now I got to do something. Genesis chapter 3 happened. It's like, oh, God doesn't, oh, I didn't see that coming. It was, it was, it was long before that, long before the foundation of the world. This was God's plan. And we were in it. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. Because we know that's what we're not. That's what separates us from God. That, that's, what, that's what keeps us from God. Is our lack of holiness and our lack of blamelessness. I think we know what it would be like if we were to get what we deserve. Something to think about as we approach the communion table, isn't it? What if? What, what if I really got what I deserve? Not just for all my life. What if even for this past week? What if what if for this past week I really got what I deserve? He has blessed us. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Verse 5. In love he predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. For the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood. He sang about the ransom this morning that was paid for our, our, our lives. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. In love he predestined us to be adopted as sons. Now, ladies, just FYI here in the first century, the ladies didn't get any of the inheritance. There, there was nothing that was left to the daughter. So the idea of sons is simply... As, as people who get the inheritance, okay? Because in the first century, there was no concept that the daughter would be the recipient of the inheritance. So, so when Paul says, adopted as sons, it's understand what sons meant in the first century. In accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. There's, the, there's this sense of, 
of this free gift. There's this idea of abundance. There's this idea of the riches of his grace that he has lavished on us, poured out on us. It's just like... It's just God's love keeps pouring out on us. And the more we understand what Jesus has accomplished for us, the more in a few moments Paul's going to identify the role of the Holy Spirit. And the more we understand what the Holy Spirit does in our lives, the more there is the sense of God just keeps bringing it on and bringing it on and bringing it on. In a good sense, not the bad sense. Not the sense of his wrath and punishment, but the sense of his goodness and his grace and his forgiveness. For the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood. We are set free. We have been bought with price. We are no longer our own. The blood of Jesus, the sacrifice of Jesus, the cross of Jesus, has set us free from the law that leads to sin and death. In him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins, the freedom, the release, the relief. Now something I want to pause here for, kind of go over just to a sidebar for a moment. I want you to notice how often the, the word we and us has come up in what we've read, and it's going to come up as, as we keep reading. He is blessed, verse 3, he has blessed us, verse 4, he chose us, verse 5, he predestined us, verse 6, he has freely given us, verse 7, in him we have redemption, verse 8, the grace that he lavished on us, us is going to come up a lot. It's about us. Not about you, Rick. Not about you, Charlie. About us, we have we have a tendency, and part of it is just we are we are people of our age, right? We have a, we have a tendency when we read the Bible, we read it as if it's addressed to me. I'm sure you know the story about, and I don't remember, but I'm sure it was done when I was in Christian services eight years ago. But God so loved Larry, that He gave His only Son. Now that's not. That, that's part of the truth. But in, in our age of individualism and me, and when I first got on the internet, it was mysastel.net. When Living Hope got on the internet, it was mylivinghope.ca. It's not just about purpose-driven life. It's the opening line in chapter one of the purpose-driven life. It's not about you. we got to stop here for a minute, because where Paul's going with this, he has blessed us. He chose us. He predestined us. We have redemption through his blood. The grace he lavished on us. Last week we started in Ephesians chapter 3, because the purpose statement there about what God is about really connected well with me with Estevan Alliance Church's vision statement about revealing God. And I'm not going to Ephesians because it's about the church, but Ephesians is about the church, and this is where it kind of starts to come home now. Ephesians is about church. The body, the whole group, 
And sometimes I think we rush to personalize statements that are made to the entire body. And when we do that, I think we forget about the implications of what it means to be part of the body of Christ. God has blessed us as a body of believers. You know, I think we read Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 as if it was personal. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And we know it's not of ourselves, it's a gift from God. But that's not personal. That's, that's sorry to use grammar on you on a Thanksgiving weekend and a long weekend and no school. But grammar, the bad thing about the English language is, right, the word you can be singular or the word you can be plural. In the Bible, you is mostly plural. You is mostly about us. So when Paul says to the Ephesians in chapter 2, by grace, you have been saved through faith, he's still talking to the us. He's still talking to the larger group in the city of Ephesus. Yes, there's the personal side. But that's only half the story. And we have, we have I think, bought into so much of that half of the story, we need to get pushed back to the other part, the corporate side of the story. The larger picture. <clears throat> the larger group. I've been involved in two churches that had significant building projects, and the, the finished project was significantly different than the, the previous state of the church. And so people would come to see the church, and they'd say, well, two, two things. Can I, see, can I see your church? They want to see the building, and I'd be inclined, no, no, let me go and take you to meet these people at, their, at the place of work, at their house, and so on. These people, the church isn't the church, it's just the building. But the other thing was, it's not my church. It's our church. It's our church. And, and we just need to pause here for a moment and shift from this me, my, and mine thing to us and ours. We need to go from me to we. And Ephesians is about we, not me. And so the redemption he talks about in verse 7, we have redemption through his blood. We are set free from the burden of sin. The debt has been canceled. We are forgiveness, forgiveness of our sin. Maybe you've seen that debt commercial where the person has to carry the guy, and I think he's in red usually on his back. That's a great picture of what salvation, what God rescues us from. That's a great picture of, of carrying that around. Not only all of our sin that gets us in right standing with God, but then after we're in right standing with God, it's that day-to-day -day sin that bogs us down. And it's like when we don't, when we don't acknowledge the sin, when we don't acknowledge what we deserve that day at that time, it's like this monkey on our back, this gets bigger and bigger and bigger. I think personalizing that debt commercial wouldn't be a bad idea and understanding it as a metaphor, as, a, as an illustration of what it's like when we don't acknowledge our sin. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of his grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and all understanding. 
And then finally, verse 9, sort of the third, the third verse of this hymn. He made known to us the mystery, there's the us again, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. He has revealed something to us, this mystery that was hidden before but is now made known about God's good pleasure, which he purposed in Jesus. And Jesus is the one that God will use to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, which is Christ. The fact that God has revealed the mystery is good news. It's his will and his good pleasure. He's not out to hide things. He wants it revealed. He wants it made known because he plans to fulfill it. And his goal is that Jesus Christ would be supreme over everything. Everything in heaven, okay, back to the first century, and the way the gods and the worship of gods was everywhere, in heaven and on earth, under one head, even Christ. And then the next few verses, verses 11 to 14, are kind of like the refrain, or kind of like the chorus, where they just kind of repeat all the things we've just talked about. Verse 11, in him we were chosen, having been predestined, according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. God planned it before we did it. God planned it before we even thought it. God had this set in motion from the beginning of time, predestined. His plan, the plan of him who works out everything with his will, in order that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ. So kind of like Paul is, is, is addressing those who would read this later, right? It's kind of like he's talking to us. So now we can go back into the story. And you were also included when you heard the word of truth. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. The gospel of your salvation. In him, when you, now by the way, you isn't singular here. You is rarely singular. It's plural. You. You. Not like Paul's pointing at individuals. He's pointing at us together. When you believed, you were marked with a seal. It's the same. It's, it's the same for all of it, the same will, the same plan, the same God, the same Savior, and the same Spirit, it just sometimes happens differently. There's, the experience may be different, but it's the same God, the same plan, the same Savior, the same Spirit. When you believed, you were marked with a seal. The promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession. And for the third time, to the praise of his glory. The spirit, the seal, the identifier. Sure, you know, back in the Middle Ages, the, they used wax and the, the king or the queen's ring or signet or whatever to identify. This is not only precious property, this is, this is owned by the king. This is, this is owned. And so the Holy Spirit is the seal. 
our security, but also our sign of ownership. We belong to God. We have the Holy Spirit. We belong to God. And that Holy Spirit guaranteed is the assurance that everything God has promised, he will bring to conclusion for us, his people. All of it's for the praise of his glory. There's just, I'm sure you know the word from John chapter 10, verse 10, where Jesus says, I have come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. There's just that picture in here in Ephesians chapter 1 of all the things that God has done from before the foundation of time, before creation. He kind of had this all laid out. This is what he was going to do. And then when, as Paul sort of rolls it out, it just keeps rolling and rolling and rolling. Talks about his riches poured out and lavished on us to the ultimate end where Jesus is supreme as his plan is fulfilled. Words of abundance, words of excess, words of fullness. Now, do you think, is it possible when we understand what life was like in the first century that that meant a little bit more to them than it does to us? Is my security really in Jesus? When all I need to know is make sure I remember my pin number? My vehicle? Or, you know, I wonder, I just, boy. We would say those people in the first century had absolutely nothing. It shouldn't surprise us, though, that when Paul talks to the Corinthians about their giving, he focuses on the Macedonian believers in Philippi and Thessalonica who gave out of their poverty. Just, things are sort of flipped around. And I think Ephesians really pushes us to a sense of humility. I, I think... And, and at this very beginning, I don't think Paul is trying to make us humble, but I think because of the way we, we sometimes twist things and, and lose our perspective, I think it should make us humble. Words of abundance, words of excess, words of fullness, we have more than enough in these spiritual blessings. They are wrapped in words of compassion. We are chosen, we are adopted, we are loved, we are redeemed, we are forgiven. Sometimes I think the person who's adopted understands better than the person who is born into a family what it means to be born and to be accepted and to be chosen. It's all grounded in the will of God and it covers everything. And Paul sort of branches it into prayer. The last part of chapter 1 is about Paul's thanksgiving and Paul's prayer. For this reason, for the sense of the abundance and the goodness and the glory and the greatness of the, what God has given us in the person of Jesus and through the gift of his spirit, who is the assurance, who is the security that everything God has promised will come true for the, his followers. It's not carte blanche. It's not you can live however you want. And so the idea of obedience and holiness is also tagged into that. For this reason, since I heard about your faith, verse 15, in the Lord Jesus, and your love for all the saints, have never stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Don't forget, Paul's in prison when he writes this. He's in prison. 
I've never stopped giving thanks for you. He could be worrying about himself, but he's not. Remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you. What that, earn, what that seal means in your life as to what God has in store for you. And his incomparably great power for us, us who believe. Because that power is like the mighty working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, gods and goddesses, emperors and kings, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body. The church is the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. The church is the fullness of him. And we've already heard about what, what's the fullness of God? Fullness of him who fills everything in every way. And it's very fitting, very appropriate that on this Thanksgiving Sunday, it doesn't happen very often because of the calendar and the cycle, but that on this Thanksgiving Sunday we celebrate communion. Usually Thanksgiving is the second Sunday of the month. So we pull all that in, and I want you to be conscious of the us factor, that everything Paul said to the Ephesians applies to us. If you're here this morning and you're a follower of Jesus, if you have confessed your sins and acknowledged your, your separation from God and your rebellion from God, and you have come to God and said, I'm sorry, I acknowledge, I admit I'm wrong, and I trust, put my trust in Jesus because he died in my place. And I want to follow him and I want to live like him. And the bread and the cup are for you this morning. If you're here this morning and you've never taken that step of faith, I encourage you to think about those. I was reading Policy and Bylaws of Estevan Alliance Church and you talk about the three steps of faith. Admit your sin. Give your life to Christ and faithfully follow him. You can do that this morning if you've never done that before. If you're tired of what's on your back and you're tired of carrying it around and tripping over it and tripping with it and I'm to take that off your back, you can do that. Jesus died for you. And if you haven't come to that place, I just invite you to white, watch and observe the testimony of those of us who are part of that us that Paul's talking about. We have a responsibility to live out the fullness of him who fills everything. That's, when we eat this bread and drink this cup, and you watch us do that, we are accountable to live like Jesus. 
in Esteban or Regina or Lampman, wherever we go. It's not only expression upward, it's also testimony outward. I'm going to invite the elders to come and join me at the front. I invite the worship team to um, take their places on the platform as we prepare to uh, celebrate communion this morning.